Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions podcast. We are talking about abortion in this episode, and occasionally I'll mention sexual abuse and violence. Nothing graphic, I promise, but some listeners may find what follows distressing. Be safe. Consider this thought experiment. I woke up one morning to find myself in bed next to an unconscious violinist. A famous unconscious violinist. He'd been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers canvassed all available medical records and found that I alone had the right blood type to help him. So they kidnapped me. And last night, the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into mine so that now my kidneys are being used to extract poisons from his blood as well as my own. The director of the hospital comes in and explains... Look, we're sorry the Society of Music Lovers did this to you. We would never have permitted it if we had known. But still, they did it. And now the violinist is plugged into you. To unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then, he'll have recovered. And we can safely unplug him from you. What should our surprised hospital patient do? Does she lie in bed with the violinist connected to her for nine months? Surely it's unreasonable to expect her to support another life without her consent. Every life matters, of course, but it's her body that the other life is drawing on. She has the right to unplug the violinist, whatever the consequences. 
That's the thought experiment offered in a groundbreaking article about abortion by the American philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson. The article is from the journal Philosophy and Public Affairs in 1971, and it's titled A Defense of Abortion. Thompson revolutionized the debate around abortion, launching arguments, particularly about bodily autonomy, that continue and prevail to this day. Before Thompson, the philosophical debate about abortion focused more on the question of whether a fetus is a person. If a fetus is just a clump of cells, there's no problem. But if it's a person, it's more tricky. We all know you're not meant to kill persons. But Thompson argued that even if we do think of a fetus as a person, abortion can still be viewed as morally acceptable, just as it would be morally acceptable to unplug yourself from the hypothetical violinist who was drawing on your body against your wishes. The right of a fetus, even if it is a person, can't trump a woman's right to be in control of her own body. Thompson's bodily autonomy argument is powerful, probably the most powerful pro-choice argument there is, and we'll return to it again. For now, though, let me admit that I am nervous about this episode, probably more nervous about this one than I was for last season's closer on racism. We're going to give the pro-choice arguments, the arguments in favour of abortion, a really good run. Abortion is overwhelmingly accepted in the countries where this podcast is listened to, so it's fair to say these arguments are dominant, or at least they'll sound familiar. But we're also going to road test the best pro-life arguments and see if they stack up. These arguments are less familiar and, as a result, less compelling in the public square. But if we're successful in this episode, we'll at least convince you that the case against abortion, the pro-life case, isn't as dumb or mean as it's often portrayed to be. And nor does it depend on religious dogma. But we'll see how we go. I'm sure you'll let me know. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Global Church, The First Eight Centuries, by Donald Fairbairn. Every episode at Undeceptions, we try and explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, 
unsolved mysteries. The death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash underceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash underceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash underceptions. Okay, I'm talking with Margaret Somerville, known as Margot, or Professor Somerville to us lower beings. Margot, hasn't the issue of abortion been resolved in favour of abortion rights? And so any form of the pro-life argument is on the wrong side of history. I think that a lot of people think it has been resolved, people who are pro-choice and feel that they have accomplished what they wanted to do, which was to decriminalise it. But I don't think that that's the end of the matter at all. That's Margaret Somerville, currently Professor of Bioethics at the University of Notre Dame here in Sydney, after many years as a professor in both the law and medicine faculties at Canada's prestigious McGill University. Margaret, or Margot, as she kept on telling me to call her, is the author of zillions of articles and a number of really important books, including the 2000 book that first introduced her to me, The Ethical Canary, Science, Society, and the human spirit. I spoke to her in between Sydney lockdowns in her gorgeous home, surrounded by some of the best First Nations art I've ever seen. And my own personal approach to abortion is that abortion is always, and I believe will remain always, a very, very serious ethical issue. A very serious ethical issue. Look, before we head too far down this difficult road, I want to acknowledge that I know there's a lot of political and legislative stuff going on around this issue right now, especially in the US. And we're going to put some links to a bunch of relevant articles in the show notes. But this episode is not timed to coincide with all that legal and political stuff. And perhaps disappointingly for some, this is not an episode about the law. It's about ethics. As Professor Somerville says, abortion is a serious ethical issue, whatever our political and legal views. The fact that something is ethically wrong doesn't necessarily mean it should be illegal, just as the fact that something is already legal doesn't make it ethically right. So when I talk about pro-life arguments in this episode, I mean the ethical philosophical arguments for preserving the life of the fetus. And when I talk about pro-choice arguments, I mean the ethical, philosophical arguments for a woman's right to decide whether or not to continue the pregnancy. And yes, you'll notice I'm using the word fetus instead of 
baby, because it seems to me that's the standard way of talking in the ethical and medical literature, even though I totally accept the natural instinct to call it a baby. Margaret, however, is very comfortable speaking as an ethicist of the baby in the womb. I think the main focus in abortion is not the baby. The main focus is the woman and her body and her right to control both her body and her life and how having a baby interferes not just with her body but also with her life. And what we do then in the pro-choice is we put the spotlight on the woman and we barely mention the baby because the baby kind of disappears. And we look at the woman, we look at her needs and desires and, you know, that, and we, we sympathize with her. You know, she's in a situation where she's panicking about things and worried about her future. And in some cases, you know, she might be subject to domestic violence. And we know that that women who are pregnant are more likely to be um, subject to domestic violence. But then if we're pro-life, what we do, we put the main spotlight on the baby and we say, hey, wait a minute, what do we owe to this little guy? My other guest today is Dr. Emma Wood. She's an adjunct lecturer at Campion College and a research fellow with the think tank Women's Forum Australia. Her doctoral research was in philosophy, specifically meta-ethics. That's the high-level analysis of how we justify what is and isn't ethical. I asked her to give me the rundown on the bodily autonomy argument for abortion. Here's the really interesting thing about this argument. As its most thoughtful proponents make the argument, uh, they're not actually trying to argue that a woman's right to the use of her own body trumps the fetus's right to life in any way. Rather, um, the, the argument they make is that it circumscribes it. It specifies the scope of a person's right to life. The basic idea behind the bodily autonomy argument is that having the right to life does not entail that you have the right to the means of sustaining your life in all possible circumstances. Consider, for instance, the possibility that uh, you may be drowning in the ocean and I may have the capacity to rescue you if I'm observing you drowning in the water. Let, let's let's assume for argument's sake that you're not a particularly good swimmer. Let's say that you have a 90% chance of drowning if, if I don't jump in and try and haul you out of the water. Let's say that if I do jump in and, and try to haul you out, um, I offer you life-saving assistance. Let's say your chances of survival go up to uh, 50%. So they've gone from 10 to 50%. Oh, let's say they even go to 60%. Most people would still regard it as a supererogatory act on my part to jump in and save you. Obviously, there's... Hey, supererogatory just means doing more than mere duty requires. Philosophers love the term, but so do some theologians, actually. Obviously, there's going to be some small risk to me in jumping in and trying to save you. Most people would still consider that by jumping in and saving you and offering you life-saving assistance, I'm going above and beyond the call of duty, even if the total cost and benefits in question would favour me jumping in. We'd still regard it as not obligatory. We'd still regard me as having a right to refuse to offer you life-saving assistance. Now, this 
kind of reasoning applies to the abortion debate as well in the bodily autonomy argument, because the bodily autonomy argument is that offering your body to a fetus to sustain that fetus is an act of uh, supererogatory life-saving assistance on a woman's part. Now, if it's supererogatory, if it goes above and beyond the call of duty, that means a woman has the right not to do it. Uh, in other words, she has the right to abort should she choose, should she want to decline to offer this life-saving assistance. You may have picked, that's Emma's version of the famous violinist thought experiment. You have a right not to put your body on the line for another person. So I just want to get clear about what the argument is before saying what I think is wrong with it. What I think is wrong with this argument, I think there are a few things wrong with it. Firstly, um, in most situations where you may or may not uh, decline to give assistance to someone, in most cases in which a person's having a right to life uh, doesn't entail the right to the means of sustaining it, in most of those cases, the, the potential rescuer, so to speak, uh, has not done anything uh, to put the person in harm's way. But in consensual sex, we know that's not the case. In consensual sex, um, you know, unlike life-saving organ donation, which is what pregnancy is often likened to, in consensual sex, the baby is dependent on your body because you have engaged in the, the very activity that is biologically ordered to bring that life into existence. You know, even, even if contraception is used, uh, contraception doesn't change the fact that biologically the function of, of sex is to bring a new life into existence. So to then deny that life, the dependence on your body, um, I think is to live in denial of one's own retrospective responsibility for this life. Um, that's the first reason I think the argument fails. So on the analogy, this um, person in the water is actually was first in your boat with you. Yeah, maybe I threw you in off the pier to start with. Um, so maybe I do have a, a duty to rescue you. Yes. Now, obviously, obviously, rape is going to complicate that conversation quite a bit. Um, and it is interesting to note that uh, even the most ardent pro-choice philosophers such as Michael Tooley think that the bodily autonomy argument fails to secure the permissibility of abortion for consensual sex. They say it might work in the case of rape, but it's not going to uh, work in the case of consensual sex uh, due to this responsibility objection, as it's known. Michael Tooley was Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. He wrote a book on abortion and infanticide in the 1980s. It's been really influential in the ethical case for abortion. Tooley argues that an entity can't possess a right to life unless it has the capacity to desire its continued existence. Since a fetus obviously lacks the capacity to desire its own existence, it lacks a right to life. Now, you might be wondering what that says about the newborn baby or the coma patient, both of which also lack the capacity to desire their continued existence. But we'll return to that later. There's a second reason why I think the analogy fails, though. And maybe this is an even more fundamental reason. I think a second reason why the analogy fails is because most, most cases in which 
uh, you have the right to deny a person life-saving existence. Most situations where that is the case is because there is already something that is threatening the existence of their life. There is already something that is compromising their biological flourishing or threatening their biological flourishing, um, which is exactly why it makes sense to to talk about assistance as life-saving assistance. It implies that there's already a threat in place. To describe the support that your body offers in pregnancy as life-saving assistance is a very misleading way to describe it because being a fetus is not like having a disease. Being a fetus is not um, like being under the threat um, it, it's not having your ordinary biological flourishing placed under threat. It's a part of standard human flourishing. Every one of us who has come into existence has had to depend on the body of a pregnant woman. Um, the life that we live, the human moral community that we enjoy is built upon the bodily dependence involved in pregnancy. So it's very unlike uh, rescuing someone from organ failure. It's very unlike uh, trying to cure someone of a disease to great sacrifice to yourself because you're not, you're not offering someone life-saving assistance. Uh, you are simply participating in the ordinary unfolding of human life and its processes. Abortion is more akin to a disease, in fact, because abortion is an assault on a natural process that is part of standard human flourishing. That's the audio of some footage producer Kaylee made me watch of a woman protesting outside an abortion clinic in Queensland in 2018. In most parts of Australia now, protesters aren't allowed anywhere near an abortion clinic. I'm not sure protests like that, which often involve publicly shaming vulnerable women, are likely to achieve much. They're more likely to galvanise opposition to the pro-life position. I might be wrong about that, but it's important, says Margaret Somerville, to realise the depth of feelings on both sides. Both sides feel they're doing something necessary and righteous. And it is a very difficult issue because you've got the conflict between a woman feeling she's lost control of her life. I think that's what she feels. And I think we can all empathise with that. And uh, you've got the fact that you've got a unique new human life that you're going to intentionally destroy. Um, so how to work that out? But I think that the first step is to recognise that the people on both sides think they are doing good, that they have chosen the way to go. That's true for both the pro-choice and the pro-life. They just disagree about when there's conflict. We call it in ethics sometimes a world of competing sorrows. And so a world of competing sorrows. It's a poignant expression used in ethics to speak of situations where whatever decision you make, you're going to cause some kind of harm. 
it's probably important for all of us, for tons of topics, to contemplate the sorrow on both sides, unless we can appreciate the passionate feelings on the other side of a debate, we probably haven't understood that side. That's true for pro-choice advocates just as much as pro-life advocates. There's a sorrow on both sides. Anyway, back to Margot. And so you've got those two sorrows. You've got the woman who feels, you know, this is going to be enormously damaging to her and her life. And you've got the fact that you've got this new human life. And as a society, particularly, what do we owe to that? What does it mean if we don't require respect for that? So, you know, that's why we're in such a, a difficult area. Yes. Do we know anything? I mean, is there good research about the main reasons women seek terminations? Oh, I, I, I'm not an expert on that, John. And uh, I, from what I do know, and I've read a lot about this over the years, I think they're as varied as the women themselves. Um, I think it can range from just not wanting to have children ever uh, to, to at the other end of the scale, perhaps, um, you know, a woman who's got a, a serious health issue and thinks that abortion is the only way in which to deal with that. That's very rare, but it does happen. A study in the journal Contraception in 2017 looked at the common reasons women seek abortions across 14 countries. The most common reason in poorer countries was, of course, socioeconomic factors, not being able to afford another child. In richer Western countries like the US and Belgium, the top reasons were, according to the paper, not ready for another child, timing was wrong, that's the US, and in Belgium, no desire for a child at the moment and partner-related reasons, which includes things like the partner didn't want the child or the mother felt there were problems in the relationship. Economic reasons also featured, and the researchers made the point that there are usually multiple reasons women decide they can't go through with a pregnancy. We'll link to this paper in the show notes, of course. The Guttmacher Institute, a leading pro-choice organisation, estimates there are more than 120 million unintended pregnancies every year around the world, and 61% of those end in abortion. That's over 73 million abortions in the world each year. Now, either that's 73 million babies killed annually, the entire population of the UK every year, or it's 73 million women, that's assuming one abortion per woman, who have managed to express their right to make decisions about their own bodies. The stakes are very high. And I suppose it's because of this that both sides tend to argue from the extremes. I asked Professor Somerville about this tendency in our public debate. Is it helpful for pro-life advocates to focus on late-term abortions when only a very small proportion of abortions are late-term? And is it helpful for pro-choice advocates to focus on, say, young rape victims when the vast majority of abortions are for timing, relationship or financial reasons? 
pro-life advocates often refer to very late-term abortions and how shocking they are, uh, but is it ethically fair to argue from the extreme? Uh, I think everyone does that. <laughs> well, my next question is about how the other side do it, but, but yes. just going with this. Uh, and it's particularly in the US situation where there's been uh, some horrific examples of late-term abortions. I mean, just appalling beyond belief. Even the pro-choice people, you know, would not support that. Two cases of very late abortion on which I was consulted. And in one of them, it was um, a married heterosexual couple uh, where the woman was 34 weeks pregnant. So well past viability. And... Um, they had an ultrasound and discovered that the baby had a cleft palate, that is the two sides of the palate hadn't joined together properly and it's not an uncommon thing and there's, they do surgery after the baby's born and correct it. And these people said no, they didn't want a defective baby and so they wanted an abortion and the hospital was very uh, upset about what to do about this and came to talk to me about it. And my understanding is that they did do that abortion. And in the other case, it was a doctoral student at my university. She was uh, from the Middle East and from an Orthodox family. And uh, she had fallen in love with another student she was pregnant, she'd hidden the pregnancy. She was 32 weeks pregnant and she presented at the hospital as saying that she was going to commit suicide unless she could have an abortion. And again, um, I found out afterwards that that abortion was done. So, you know, there's, there's difficult cases for sure, really difficult cases. I mean, I think the first situation was completely appalling. And in another case, we had a woman visitor from the West Indies who was visiting her sister and she collapsed on the floor of the sister's apartment and got rushed into the hospital and put on resuscitation and uh, was kept on it and given uh, antibiotics because she had some massive infection and uh, anyway they kept her on the respirator for uh, I think about three months and at the time she was admitted she was four months pregnant so the issue was they by this time after seven months they knew after sorry after three months they knew she was not going to recover consciousness and so the issue was, could they turn off the respirator? Did they deliver the baby before they turned it off? Or what did they do? And so the other side uh, also offer the extreme uh, to support the pro-choice. Um, they raise the example of a woman who will die as a result of the pregnancy yeah. or of a young rape victim. Yeah. Um, how ethically clarifying for the general discussion about abortion are those extreme cases? They're important things to think about. Uh, I think um, 
I mean, rape is horrible and um, incest, and especially if it's incest, and then, uh, you know, and very young girl who's pregnant. I'm inclined to allow exemptions for those within any law that would otherwise restrict abortion. Um, and I think the reason is that in those rare and extreme circumstances, it should be a decision that is left to the, uh, either to the person or to their guardians, I mean, depending on how old the young girl is. Um, and I would, I, I guess I would regard it somewhat in the analogy of we don't believe in killing human beings, but we do justify some wars and some protections. And where that is not absolutely essential, then we shouldn't do it. But it, there, there, it is not a total absolute. And so it becomes a question of how awful does it have to be before you would say, well, you know, this is a case where it should be left open. And um, mm. it's, you know, if you look at the spectrum on abortion from absolutely no abortion at all, never, ever, ever, even if the mother's life is in danger, to one end, and you look to the other end, absolutely no restrictions on abortion at all. It is just, you know, a small thing and the woman's got the absolute right, even if she's nine months pregnant, you know. Very few people on either side are at those poles. And what you've got in between is a gradation of how restrictive your law should be but you've also perhaps, I don't know that you've, I don't think you have got a gradation of ethics. I think abortion is always a very serious ethical issue, but you can have a gradation of law to govern that. And that brings us to a significant question. What exactly is that fetus? Uh, the word fetus. Um, yeah. A fetus obviously doesn't have the capacities of a fully grown human being and not even the capacities of a child. So why should a fetus be granted rights that in any way compete with the rights of the woman? There's essentially two theories um, about what pregnancy involves in terms of the development of the fetus or unborn child. One of them is called the construction theory. And what it is, is that until a certain point of development, the, uh, un the fetus is not sufficiently developed to be regarded as a member of the human race. And I mean, this is Peter Singer's approach too. And Peter Singer, by the way, is a super famous Australian philosopher at the renowned Princeton University in the US. He accepts that a fetus is a member of the human species, but he argues that that doesn't necessarily give this small human a right to life. It is not a fully conscious person yet. It's only part of the way along to gaining the full rights of personhood. This is the constructionist view of personhood, as Margaret explains. 
And so under that theory, you wouldn't have an unborn child that deserved protection until they reached a stage at which you could say that is a child. Now, almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody agrees that viability, that is the ability to live outside the body of the woman, is such a point that even under a construction theory, uh, they think that child should be recognised. The other theory is called the developmental theory. And that says that from the moment of conception, you've got a unique new human being. Um, some people put that at 14 days because that's the point at which you can no longer get identical twins or identical triplets. But right from that very early stage, you've got, um, you've got a new human being. And then everything that that a child will become uh, genetically uh, and you know in their essence and being and uh, their physiology and whatever that is all already present and so the rest of life is simply a development of the early person well you can't use the word person because that's contentious the early human being and um, uh, and the uh, image that's often used is that of a pear tree. You've got a tiny baby little plant, and it is a pear tree plant. And you put it in the ground, and it grows up, and it becomes a big pear tree, and it has lots of pears on it. That's still the same tree as that little tiny one you put in the ground, and that's the one that's used to describe the developmental theory. I'm guessing uh, you fall into that second camp of a de de developmental view of human life. Um, what, what do you believe is superior in that understanding uh, to the constructionist view? Because I think that it is more, it is truer to the natural scientific reality of who we are and where we come from because there is no point that you can identify at which you suddenly go from being a non-human to a human in the construction theory. It's not like, you, you, it's not a man, you see the house is a man-made construction and you can say, I won't call it a house till it's got walls and a roof. But in the, in the case of a human being, that's a natural development. It's not something that we are making. And so there's a false image that gives you the wrong information, as far as I can see. Um, what do you think is the correct principle in thinking about the status of a fetus? I mean, is it uh, personhood? Yes, that's very contentious. Um, consciousness? Uh, human, life, like what is the correct way to start drawing out ethical principles? Very basic, living human being, not, not living human doing. You don't have to do anything, you just have to be and then you should attract the protections that go to living human beings. And you see, once you start saying you've got to have consciousness, you've got to be able to do this, if you can't do that, you're not going to get protected. That's not, a hu that's not protecting human beings. 
that's demanding that before you get protection, you must be a human doing. You have to do things in order to win your human protection. That's wrong. Yes, and you so can see what that means for people with disabilities. Indeed. Or even infants, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Infants don't have well, the capacities. Huh. That's a point I find myself getting stuck on. I don't know how you feel about it. It's not just fetuses that don't have full consciousness or self-awareness or a desire for continued existence. Newborn babies don't have that either, nor do coma patients. What does that mean for their rights, their ethical status? Pondering that point changed my mind on this topic. But back to Margaret. It seems that it really comes down to whether that thing inside the womb is a human. Well, of course it is. So, if, it, if it's not a human, what is it? <laughs> you uh, are an ex-fetus, John. Keep it in mind. Somebody could have got rid of you. But it, it is as simple as that. It, it, or is it? I mean, <laughs> nothing's simple in ethics. But if, if I don't believe that thing in the womb really is a human being yet, for whatever reason, then it is, for me, ethical, allowable to get rid of it. Yeah, you can say that for you, you think it's ethical, but then you come to the question, is ethics only what the individual thinks it is? Or are there some norms that we need to take into account to decide uh, whether as an individual or as a collective uh, what we think is ethical and that those ethical principles will guide us. This is obviously a life and death issue. There's no way around that. Whatever you reckon the fetus is, it either continues living or it doesn't. But there is another argument against abortion that doesn't depend on settling this question of whether a fetus is a person with rights. It's no quack argument either, and it's got nothing to do with religion. So stay with us beyond the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated, they lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. 
I want you to talk us through this famous article by Don Marquis, professor of philosophy. It, it was in a reputable journal, right? We're not talking about some dinky <laughs> theology journal. Tell it, tell us, you know, what the journal was and 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 how how well rated that journal is. Mm. Oh, it was Journal of Philosophy, I believe. So it was. It's one of the. It's one of the most well established academic philosophy journals. It was 1989 that the that was the year of publication of the piece, and by then uh, the abortion debate had been uh, raging for quite some time. For the nerds who want to pin this down, the author is Don Marquis, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S, though Emma later corrects me that it's actually pronounced Marquis. Anyway, the title is Why Abortion is Wrong in the Journal of Philosophy, Volume 86, Number 4, April 1989, pages 183 to 202. Knock yourself out. The article is called Why Abortion is Immoral. It sounds like it's about to be this sort of blustering right-wing crazy thing, but it sure isn't. By using the title Why Abortion is Immoral, he's not insinuating necessarily that all women who have abortions are equally blameworthy. I think there's a possible distinction you can make between blameworthiness of an action and the wrongness of it. You know, you might look at something like prostitution in the third world. You might say that prostitution is always a wrong act in the sense that sex is just not something that should be sold. But you wouldn't necessarily thereby be saying that all third world women who engage in prostitution are blameworthy for for their act. Here's one of the subtleties often lost in this debate. An action can be wrong always wrong, but the blameworthiness, the moral guilt attached to it might be lesser or greater depending on the circumstances. We accept this all the time. In fact, just yesterday, I heard of a case where a prison inmate beat his cellmate to death. It was a murder. It was wrong. But it turns out the murdered inmate was the perpetrator of the rape of the other inmate's little sister. Now, that inmate asked to be put in a different cell because the rapist had begun to taunt him about what he did to his sister. Prison officials apparently refused, and one day when the taunting continued, this guy snapped and he killed his sister's rapist. The action was wrong, but I bet most of us listening in would agree that the blameworthiness of the action was less much less than if this were an unprovoked attack. I'm sorry if that's all a bit too confronting, but the point is, it's possible to see abortion as wrong, always wrong, and agree that the blameworthiness of the action is different depending on the circumstances of the case. Pro-life advocates aren't being inconsistent when they accept that an abortion following a rape is a very different thing from an abortion where there's no desire for a child at the moment, to use the language of the article I quoted earlier. And let me add um, as plainly as I can, and perhaps I should have said this earlier, While I'm not offering a specifically Christian case against abortion in this episode, no Christian should speak against abortion without making clear that God's mercy, the mercy Christ died for, extends to anyone who wants it, regardless of the blameworthiness of an action. 
back to Emma and her explanation of the famous, well, famous in philosophical circles, argument of Don Marcus. The crucial starting point is the question, why is it wrong to kill you or me? Um, All things being equal, assuming that you or I have not been involved in some heinous crime, we're not being punished, we're not, you know, someone is not attacking us in self-defence, all usual exceptions being equal, um, why is it wrong to kill you or me? Um, And there there are certain possibilities that you can eliminate. Uh, You can eliminate the possibility that it's just because killing you or me would cause pain. If if it's about the pain to you, then that entails that uh, painlessly anaesthetising you would not be wrong, but we we're never going to accept that conclusion. It can't be because it causes pain to your loved ones because then you get the implication that killing, you know, a friendless hermit would be just fine, but we're not going to accept that either. Um, it can't sorry to interrupt again. You might be feeling sorry for our poor, friendless, murdered hermit. Emma, following Marcus, is pointing out that if the wrongness of murder lies in the hurt it causes the loved ones of the murder victim, then killing someone who doesn't have any loved ones isn't wrong. So the wrongness of murder must lie in something else. It can't be either because of the possibility that it ends uh, someone's consciousness or because death appears at the time to a person um, as a loss to them. Uh, If that were the case, shooting someone in the back of the head while they're not looking would not be wrong, nor would killing someone who's in a deep sleep uh, and possibly about to wake up in a few months. So you can eliminate all those possibilities for the key wrong-making feature of killing you or me. So so the conclusion that he arrives at is that the key wrong-making feature of killing you or me is that it would deprive you or me of a future of value, a future of experiences typical of human life. Now, if that's true, if that is the key wrong-making feature of killing, then you have to conclude that that same feature applies for the killing of an embryo, a fetus, any human individual uh, from conception onward, because they possess a future in the same sense that you and I possess a future. Given time and nutrition, they will go on to move into this future of valuable experiences. Uh, so, so there you have it. That That is the future value account of the wrongness of abortion. Here are Marcus's own words from that important article. Thanks, Director Mark. The claim that the primary wrong-making feature of a killing is the loss to the victim of the value of its future has obvious consequences for the ethics of abortion. The future of a standard fetus includes a set of experiences, projects, activities and such, which are identical with the futures of adult human beings and are identical with the futures of young children. Since the reason that is sufficient to explain why it is wrong to kill human beings after the time of birth is a reason that also applies to fetuses, it follows that abortion is prima facie seriously morally wrong. There's nothing religious here. No doctrine, no scripture, no gods. There's just logic. If what makes murder wrong is the taking of a victim's human future, that applies equally to babies and to fetuses. 
both of which, in the normal course of events, will have future experiences just like ours. Now, Marcus is quick to point out that this argument doesn't apply to euthanasia, where the subject chooses to give up their unwanted future. And nor does it apply to contraception, he says, because by definition, contraception prevents the very creation of a particular subject that could enjoy a human future. I mean, a sperm or an egg on its own can't be said to have a future. Only a fertilized embryo is an identifiable subject destined to have a human future. Marcus's argument applies only to the thing that is in process after conception. And you find this compelling? I mean, I think it was a throwaway comment you once made on my Facebook page that alerted alerted me to this article years ago. Um, how compelling is it? Yes. I, I think one of the really interesting things about this argument is that a, a lot of the debate in the, in the uh, pro-life and pro-choice uh, uh, philosophical, uh, a lot of the philosophical debate uh, revolves around the question of personhood. So whether the embryo or fetus is a person yet. Um, now that debate is really interesting. Uh, I think there are good reasons to consider an embryo or, or fetus uh, a being that is already a person. But supposing you want to sidestep that whole debate about personhood, about unborn personhood, if you want to sidestep that whole debate but you still feel that there's something not quite right with the standard pro-choice line, Marcus's argument is going to appeal to you because it gives you a basis for uh, locating the wrongness of abortion in what it does to the victim rather than uh, because of any any uh, consequentialist considerations to society at large about how costly a life is going to be, for instance. It gives you a basis for locating the wrongness of abortion in what it does to the victim without making the claim that the victim is yet a person. The, claim, the argument is interesting because... Uh, essentially it argues the harm involved in killing in abortion is what makes it wrong, regardless of whether or not this embryo or fetus is yet a person. So just to recap, Don Marcus first shows that what makes murder wrong is the taking of the victim's future. And then he points out, inescapably I think, that this applies equally to newborn babies whose future it is wrong to take away, and to fetuses. And so what pushback might there be to this argument? If what is wrong with murder is robbing a human future, this seems to have really solved the moral argument. You're robbing a human future every time an embryo is aborted. I think, well, the, the argument about Marx's argument that has happened since has revolved around technicalities of what sort of future you're talking about. I think some critics have tried to trip the argument up by uh, looking at the fact that there are a lot of fetuses that spontaneously abort. Okay, if a human future is so valuable, then isn't the pro-life position monstrous because we're not doing anything to save the large proportion of embryos who spontaneously abort? So they've tried to find uh, ways into refuting the future of value account uh, through thought exercises like that. 
it doesn't seem that that compelling a, a response to to the Don's argument. There are plenty of people who'd argue that pro-lifers are monstrous for all sorts of reasons. One accusation that sticks out is that those who advocate against abortion are really only interested in protecting life before birth. They are not pro-life, they're just pro-birth. They couldn't care less what happens to the kid that's actually born. Take this little exchange between two New York Times columnists, pro-choice advocate Michelle Goldberg and pro-lifer Ross Douthat. There are things you can do to make it easier for somebody with an unplanned pregnancy to bring it to term. But aside from Ross and, you know, sort of a few other quirky figures, that's not a priority. And I think that there's a fundamental question to me, well, it's not even a question because I know what I think about it, um, of you know, is the anti-abortion movement interested in stopping abortions or banning abortions? Or is it interested in reducing the number of abortions or making abortions illegal? Because those two things are different questions. Now, I completely agree with Michelle. And as she kindly acknowledged, I'm part of the small faction of conservatives that thinks that government spending and government policy around families is a really important area of public policy where conservatives have, with some exceptions, failed in their goals. At the same time, the actual pro-life movement, which is not the same thing as the Republican Party, right? It's a sort of group within the Republican Party that doesn't have actual control over the Republican Party in all kinds of ways. The actual pro-life movement has spent large amounts of time and energy through all kinds of charitable organizations and Catholic religious orders and crisis pregnancy centers and so on, trying to actually help mothers who want to have babies. I think this is insufficient as public policy, that private charity is not enough. But the idea that like the pro-life movement mostly consists of people sitting around saying we really need to restore status hierarchies and keep women in their place. I don't think they're saying that. I think it's implicit. It just doesn't map onto actual pro-life activism. Like the people who are activists, the people who actually work on this issue are doing the things that under Michelle's theory of what's going on, they shouldn't they're be They're not doing. doing it that much. That's from an episode of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. We'll add a link in the show notes. Now, Ross Douthat is too conservative for some, and he's dismissed as a squishy conservative by others. But I reckon he makes two good points. One is a kind of concession, and the other is a pretty strong defence. On the one hand, Christians haven't been that active in trying to reduce the number of abortions through good public policy measures, access to birth control, better sex ed and healthcare, paid parental leave, support for single mums, and so on. I reckon that's a blind spot for myself included. On the other hand, with due respect for Michelle Goldberg, whom I love reading and listening to, she drives me nuts, but she's so thoughtful and articulate. She is just wrong that the churchy pro-life types are simply pro-birth, not pro the whole human life. Religious conservatives are more likely than any other demographic to be involved in public volunteering, orphanages, food programs, affordable housing projects, women's shelters, and on and on. It gets very little press, which I suppose is why Goldberg can say they're not doing it that much, but they're doing it more than any other demographic. 
As we leave high school, we need to make our voices heard. Today, I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. That's Paxton Smith, an 18-year-old American woman, speaking as valedictorian of her Texan high school just a few months ago. Um, Her speech went viral after she switched her approved text to something completely different. She chose to talk about this so-called heartbeat bill in Texas, which is about to come into effect in the state uh, on the 1st of September. In a nutshell, the bill bans abortion at the point where there's a fetal heartbeat, usually around six weeks. Politicians did a fair bit of creative legislating to get around the United States Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal nationally in the 1970s. Anyway, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can find out more about that specific bill, as well as a really important legal case from Mississippi that's set to be heard by the US Supreme Court in the next 12 months. Anyway, that's not why we're listening to Paxton Smith. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger a decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights. A war on the rights of your mothers. A war on the rights of your sisters. A war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you. It's powerful stuff. And I wonder if Paxton would see what I'm doing in this episode as a war on mothers, sisters, and daughters, a breach of a woman's fundamental rights. I feel the force of that. So let me hand back to Dr. Emma Wood. Well, I guess like, I I guess the reason why the debate rages on is because that despite the moral reservations that a lot of thoughtful pro-choice people have about uh, killing a human being, ending a human life, despite those moral reservations, the perception that abortion is a positive social good that women somehow need 
a good that women for some reason need in order to gain equality with men, in order to exercise proper freedom. That perception that abortion is a woman's basic need has persisted. Um, now, ultimately, I think that argument is not convincing. I think whatever, whatever need you can point to uh, that a woman may have that falls short of the preservation of her own life, I think obviously you have to stack up against the deprivation of, of someone's entire future. But that is the that is the reason why the, I think the abortion rate debate still rages on. It's because people cannot conceive of what living the good life would mean for women absent abortion. You you once said to me in 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 uh, our twos and fro's our messenger to and fro's that you think there's something inherently anti woman mm. to the log to the logic of abortion. Uh, wow, that that goes against the grain, <laughs> um, because I would have thought that um, one of the best arguments is that, um, and, and is the reason why you know I shouldn't do much talking <laughs> on this issue because I, I'm not a woman. Um, this is really a woman's issue. It's really about women flourishing. Yeah, I the idea that abortion is is a pro woman solution. To, to a challenge that, that, that human beings have, the challenge of uh, living, uh, the, the challenge of living out your sexuality and the challenge of nurturing the life that comes from that. The idea that abortion is or could be a pro-woman solution has um, for a long time struck me as implausible. There are a number of reasons for this. Um, for a start, abortion, and, and a lot of social comment commentators have recognised this since the sexual revolution, since the liberalisation of abortion laws, abortion, easily available abortion, has given sexually selfish men a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, her body, her choice, her problem, as the saying now goes. Now, it used to be the case that if an unwanted pregnancy occurred, um, if it occurred outside of marriage, the the custom uh, was that the man would be expected to marry the woman. Um, the child was not to be sacrificed for what would then have been deemed a mistake that the couple made, uh, conceiving outside of, of, of marriage. And so the shotgun marriage used to be pretty common. Um, George Akerlof and Janet Yellen, the famous economists, uh, noticed that when abortion uh, laws were initially uh, liberalised in the early 70s, right at that time you started to see a decline in shotgun marriage. So while, while the original solution to reproductive asymmetry, which is just the fact that sex costs women more than it costs men, the original solution to that reality used to be marriage. Now the solution to that problem is abortion because with easily available abortion, it has become harder for women to hold men to account when they become pregnant. It is harder for men to, uh, women to get a commitment from men when they find themselves pregnant. And so, of course, it's women who end up on the abortionist table with all the associated uh, negative impacts of post-abortion regret while uh, too many carefree men can walk away 
from that situation with an unequal consequence. Um, Just popping in to say that the two economists Emma is talking about here, Yellen and Akerlof, wrote in 1996 that, quote, by making the birth of the child the physical choice of the mother, the sexual revolution has made marriage and child support a social choice of the father. Um, So there's that. We could talk for a long time about the flow-on effects of, of this degradation of sex and this loosening of sex from commitment. I don't think it's a state of affairs that women particularly want. So there, there are really important questions to ask there about the um, about the sexual norms that easily ab- available abortion has ingrained that women probably uh, don't particularly enjoy. But look, I think there's something intrinsically anti-woman about the pro-abortion stance. Because what the pro-abortion stance says to a woman is that in order in order to be able to advance professionally, to advance in her education, to be a useful citizen, what the what the pro-abortion message says to a woman is that she has to be at war with her own body. She has to be at war with the natural processes of her own body. She can't achieve equality with men unless she is like a man, namely not pregnant. Um, Only if pregnancy, um, which is a a defining feature of womanhood, only if a woman can eliminate pregnancy, this distinctively womanly experience from her existence, is she able to compete with a man. Um, In other words, a woman needs a surgical operation in order to fully flourish as a human, while a man needs no such thing. I think that logic to the pro-abortion movement is inherently anti-woman because it does set women against their own bodies in much the same way that our culture of objectification sets us against our own bodies. If I may speak personally and directly for a moment, I mean, I know it's my show and I can do what I like, but I'm also conscious that I'm a bloke and this issue doesn't affect me like it does uh, women. Anyway, if you don't mind me speaking directly about my view, I used to be quite uninterested in the topic of abortion. I thought it was just the Catholics who were all up in arms about it. And in pastoral settings early in my ministry, I was quite hands-off when people came to me asking for advice about their abortion. I see it differently now, uh, partly because of the realisation that my pastoral approach was a bit shallow. It was all uh, care and support and very little ethical insight. And it was also partly because I did more history and philosophy, if you can believe that. I still don't talk much about this issue. I mean, here we are, 50 episodes into Underceptions, and this is the first time I've mentioned it. And I don't think I've ever preached on it. But I have slowly come to think that pro-choice arguments are so popular mainly because they're emotionally compelling. It's not because they're successful moral or logical arguments. Honestly, I can't see how all of the arguments for killing a fetus in the womb don't apply equally to killing a newborn baby outside the womb. And it's pondering that nexus between unborn and born that really has landed this for me 
um, intellectually anyway. A newborn would have no awareness or fear of being killed by its mother. A newborn isn't consciously desiring existence. A newborn isn't a fully rational person. A newborn is just as dependent on some adult assistance as a fetus is on its mother. And a newborn, of course, can be a huge strain on parents' mental health and financial security. And here's where the history thing really struck me. These are all the reasons ancient societies gave for both abortion and infanticide. They accepted abortion on the same grounds they accepted discarding unwanted newborns. Only ancient Jews and Christians opposed both abortion and infanticide. Studying abortion and infanticide in the pre-Christian era helped me see that I couldn't be intellectually consistently pro-choice about the unborn without being pro-choice about the newly born. The logic just doesn't work. If there's a strong reason not to kill a newborn, despite the fact that the parents really want to, that reason will also apply to killing the unborn. There may be less blameworthy instances of killing a newborn, but it is always wrong to do so because it always takes away the newborn's human future. There are less blameworthy instances of abortion too, the example of the young rape victim. But abortion always amounts to taking away a human future like ours. It is always wrong. For me, this is simply moral logic, not religion. The only specifically religious or Christian thing I want to say in this episode is that Christ died for our forgiveness, no matter how blameworthy we think we are. Let me reassure listeners, his mercy is greater than our wrongdoing. But that doesn't mean the wrong isn't real. As Professor Somerville said to me, this is life and death. And uh, you can hardly think of anything more important uh, in terms of having some form of both personal or individual and collective ethics than the decision between life and death. And that's what you're talking about. I mean, that's a, a zero-sum game. There's no, there's no niceties involved that, you know, you can put some ribbons on it or flowers around it or something. That's the last episode for this season. Maybe some of you are thinking, good riddance. I hope you'll come back. We've already started work on season five and I can't wait. Between now and then, we'll be releasing some Undeception singles, a few from me and a few from my mates, including one from Sam Albright in a couple of weeks. Watch out for that one. It's fantastic. And you're going to start to see some developments here at Underceptions over at the website and in the frequency and quality of the show and, God willing, in the launch of some very new things. So if you're in a position to help us out, please consider donating. 
The Undeceptions project got off the ground in the first place only because of three really generous benefactors. You know who you are. Thank you. But we need your help, listeners, to sustain and expand this project. Please head to undeceptions.com and click the oversized donate button. Whatever you can give is deeply appreciated. Every dollar goes toward undeceiving the public and letting the truth out. Thanks so much. Next episode. Actually, we haven't decided yet. It could be aliens, if Director Mark gets his way, the Underground Church of Asia, the Good Life with Miroslav Volf, transgenderism, and a bunch more. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by this season's best and fairest, Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Seriously, Zondervan, love you guys. An Undeceptions podcast.